Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. A science story, huh? It was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Clatter, where true personal stories about science help us to discover how weird and wonderful it is to exist in this world and be a human. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week our stories ask what it means to bring your whole self into a space. Our storytellers enter the question in such different ways, and I can't wait for you to hear them, so let's get to it. First up, Raul Fernandez. Raul is a scholar activist who focuses on inequities in education. His story explores the controversial topic of educational diversity programs and questions if they're helping the students or if they're actually hurting them. Not only is the story so thought-provoking, but Raul is incredible, and I can't wait for you to hear his experience. Here's Raul. When I was a kid, I loved science. And I mean all of it. I'm talking about astronomy, chemistry, physics, computers, but engineering. Engineering was my jam. I mean, the idea that you could build structures that last for hundreds of years, I mean, how cool is that? And for me, I remember deeply that that is what I wanted to be. And that was a big dream for me coming from where I come from. I grew up in 1970s, 80s in El Barrio, Spanish Harlem in New York, and later on in the South Bronx, in an underpaid family, in an under-resourced community with typically under-resourced schools, certainly not the kind of schools that produce engineers. But I got a big break when I was just four years old. There was a teacher, Ms. Friedlander, who had to decide who amongst the kids in her class she was gonna recommend for this talented and gifted program. And the stakes were high. You get in this program, you go on this really well-resourced path, success. If you don't, you're likely to stay in the typically under-resourced schools in the communities that I lived in. And for me, by the time I was in high school, that would have meant going to Stevenson High School, where at the time, just 30% of the students were graduating. That's three in 10 students graduating high school, never mind going on to college to be engineers. So the stakes were high for me, and. Because I got in that program, I ended up at Manhattan East and later on the Bronx High School of Science, two schools that really fostered in me this love of science and supported me throughout. That's not to say it was easy. I mean, I was a smart kid, but I was also a distracted kid with lots of problems going on at home and in my community. And I had to really struggle to get through that time. You know, I I also, my mind, like it's doing right now, used to wander a lot. Uh, And I would sit, sort of looking out the window while class was going on, and just imagine Spider-Man swinging from rooftop to rooftop. Uh, I would also lose time a lot. You know what that is, when you lose time? 
It's like in a movie, there's a time jump and some time has passed and you have no clue what's happened, what's been said. Imagine that in class when the bell rings. No clue what's going on. You know, I had to find a way to quiet my mind a little bit. And I did that at home. I was able to actually listen to music, a little hip hop music. When I was studying calculus, Biggie. Chemistry, Pac. Little East Coast, West Coast, right? And it quieted my mind and allowed me to focus on what it was that I was doing. It's a little counterintuitive. The problem was, when you go into school, you can't take tests with music on, right? Well, there was this one teacher. I don't remember his name, although I wish I did. He was this teacher of color, Latino maybe. And because we built the relationship, I felt comfortable enough asking, like, hey, this is how I study at home. Would you mind if I took my test with headphones on? And he got it. He did ask me if he can listen first to see if I'd recorded the answers to the test. <laughs> He's not dumb. Uh, and it worked out. And I felt supported in that way. And supported enough to get to Boston University in the mid-90s as an undergraduate student. Kind of. I got the acceptance letter. I had applied to the College of Engineering, of course, and was very excited when that acceptance letter came. Except it didn't say College of Engineering. It said, congratulations, you've been accepted to the Science and Engineering program. That was a surprise to me, because I'd never applied to it. What was it? Well, as it explained in the letter, it was a bridge program. You get into this program, you do well enough for two years, and then we'll bump you up to the College of Engineering, and you can be a proper engineer at that point. Well, okay, I'll do it, sure. Sounds good to me. And I learned a little bit more about this program. I realized it was a bridge program. Unfortunately, this bridge program, instead of focusing on the strengths and abilities of the kids there, really focused on our weaknesses. I also realized during the first day when I was kind of excited, maybe a little nervous, and I looked to the left and right at me, and I was like, there's a lot of black and Latino kids in this program. Why is that? Boston University at the time, still, it's a very white institution. I mean, I remember going on my campus tour with my mother, and the, the tour guide was really excited to tell us the previous year, Boston University had won a national championship. I was like, yeah? And then he said, in hockey. And I was like, oh boy, this, is, this place is white. And still, I was still excited to be there. Of course, I felt like I didn't belong. I felt out of place, no question about that. And this program, knowing that it sort of put these black and brown kids in this program that was different from large university, different from the college, made me secure in the fact that I was out of place there. Not only that, it moved too fast. You know, it may seem like all STEM fields are designed to weed you out, but this was supposed to be a bridge for you to move forward, and it felt like there were a lot of hurdles in our place. It moved so fast that my classmates and I would actually take turns asking questions. Like, can you get this one? I got the next one. I'll raise my hand next time, right? Uh, and the professors, more often than not, would say, sorry, we've got to move on. There's just not enough time. We have to move on. And if that wasn't enough, there were no black or Latino professors there as well. And we really felt like they weren't making an attempt to get to know us personally. We were struggling academically, sure, but we had all these other needs, too, that weren't being met. And so we relied on each other, you know? But we were all struggling, so we could only help each other so much. It was frustrating, it was demoralizing, it was demeaning. And, you know, I, this is a thing that I was good at, that I was passionate about, that I knew was my future. 
and I was failing miserably at it. I remember sitting in my dorm room and I was doing some chemistry work and that feeling came up, that frustration, the kind of frustration that starts to turn to anger at some point. And I remember thinking, man, life sucks. This program sucks. I'm so mad. Everything's wrong. Nothing's going right for me. Before I knew it, I was standing up with my $250 chemistry book in my hand and I hurled it across the room. Except there was a dorm room, so it landed right there. <laughs> but you could feel palpably, I could certainly, my anger in the moment, and it made me realize something had to change. I was looking for a bright spot, and I found one. Of all the classes that I was taking, the one that I was doing the best in was actually an English class. I loved it. I was thriving. I used to write rhymes when I was younger, so putting pen back to paper felt good. It felt natural. It felt like it was what I was supposed to be doing. When I talked to some friends, I realized that there was this college called the College of Communication. And I was so excited to see all the coursework they had there. I said, I have to be in this college. I have to be in there. What do I need to do? Well, you've got to get the signature of the director of your current program to switch to the next program. Bet. No problem. <laughs> and so, next day, I go into the director of the science and engineering program's office. His name is Chip. And I laid it on pretty thick because I wanted a signature. I said, hey, you know, this program has been amazing. So supportive. <laughs> My friends rave about it. <laughs> However, I found this thing that I really love, that I, I, it, is, it is my new passion, I need to follow it, and the only thing I need from you, Chip, I just need a signature on this paper. Chip looks at the paper, he looks at me, and he says, no. No. Can he even say no? This is my life, this is my future, I'm paying to be here, like how is this person telling me no? I'm in shock, I'm confused. Am I gonna have to stay in this program? Am I gonna have to leave BU? I don't know. And before I could say anything, Chip follows up. Chip, a man with a punchable name and a face to match. <laughs> Chip tells me, we don't like students coming in the back door and then doing whatever they want when they get here. Oh, Chip. Now again, this frustration, this anxiety, it all turns to anger. And I unleashed a slew of expletives on Chip that are not fit for the stage. But I will tell you it was punctuated by this. Do you really want a fucking kid like me in your stupid fucking program, Chip? <laughs> Chip looks at me and he says, no, I most certainly do not. <laughs> and he signs the paper right there. Thanks, Chip. I walked out of there feeling a little bit excited, worried about whether or not I was gonna get in trouble for what I just did, but also this sense of calm that came over me. I didn't really know what was gonna be going on next, but I knew whatever happened, it was gonna be on my terms. Raul Fernandez. To learn more about him, visit our website, storyclatter.org. Being a storyteller on the stage is just one way to make story clatter happen, but if standing alone in the spotlight in front of an audience doesn't speak to you, maybe 
becoming a Story Collider donor might be more your speed. Story Collider donors play a vital role in our ability to bring you this podcast. We're in this together. Story Collider is one big experiment that's designed to connect us around our love of discovery, curiosity, and the natural world. If you believe in the power these stories have and this mission, please donate to the Story Collider at storyclutter.org donate. The most popular level is $10 a month, and you can make your tax-deductible donation at storyclutter.org donate. But really, any level makes a difference, and we're so grateful to everyone who supports Story Collider. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our second story is from Cynthia Chapel. Cynthia is a scientist, an advocate for Black girls and women, and a champion of equity. She is the founder of Black Girls Do STEM, an organization offering exploration of career pathways through hands-on curriculum in the areas of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics to middle and high school Black girls. Her story was recorded at the Public Media Commons in St. Louis this year. Cynthia's story shines a light on the discouraging experiences Black girls in academia experience. The story is so powerful and highlights the reality of being Black in white spaces. Here's Cynthia. So today I call myself the chief Black girl doing STEM. I'm not quite sure what all that means, but I would like to take you on the journey of self-discovery. My science story starts in fourth grade in Mr. Estes' class in Chicago public schools. See, I'm a Chicago Southsider. <laughs> and as early as I can remember walking out into the big city, I was curious, asking questions, looking around, interacting with the things around me, wanting to understand how everything worked. Mr. Estes was an African-American male educator, and he was young, and he was cute, and he smelled good. <laughs> so fourth grade me was smitten. I can recall being in fourth grade, and Mr. Estes would have these math competitions where he would stick out his hand, and it would be you versus your opponent, and it was whoever hit his hand first got to answer the math problem. And you know... I not only wanted to be the winner because I was competitive, but I also wanted to touch Mr. SC's hand. <laughs> that was the first time where I was affirmed as being good at math, as being a problem solver. But not only just math and problem solving, but really an ability to figure anything out. That was pretty much the extent of my K-8 experience and I would end eighth grade as class valedictorian as a result. I started high school also in Chicago public schools. I transferred to Indiana because I moved with my sister to attend Lafayette School Corporation. In high school, I was in an IB program taking advanced math. When I went to school in Indiana, somehow I ended up in the lowest class possible landing in a remedial pre-algebra course. And I know it was remedial because on the block schedule, instead of going every other day, I went every day. 
I remember going to talk to the counselor and explaining that I needed to be in different classes and asking why wasn't I put into comparable coursework compared to what I was doing in Chicago. And she explained to me that they weren't going to accept any of my Chicago credits, that they couldn't certify that program. And I was like, isn't IB an international distinction? That was my first instance of feeling underestimated, of somehow feeling as though I was seen as a black girl from Chicago public school and then assumed the worst, that somehow I just needed to go into the lowest coursework possible. I ended up graduating high school on time with honors after also working to get all of the credits that they did not give me back from Chicago. Because that's how easy high school was. <laughs> Just a little brag. I attended undergrad at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Ooey pooey to some, I say IUPUI. <laughs> I was a forensic science chemistry double major, content on finishing a five-year degree in four years because I had a first-generation scholarship. I can recall taking about 50% coursework in criminal justice and 50% of my coursework in science. And I was in a forensic presentation course, and my professor was an ex-prosecutor. Forensic presentation was all about forensic history, case studies, and giving comprehensive speeches. I put in my first paper and gave my first speech, and I remember getting the notes back, and it was just riddled in red ink with a big fat F. Yeah. My professor said to me, your speech was terrible, and you write how you speak, and I'm afraid that you're just not going to come off credible if you do not improve your diction. I was there again right there in a moment of feeling underestimated. I can recall that semester wanting to shrink. I went from being the student that sat in the front of the room raising my hand to ask big questions to sitting in the back trying to shrink and just become invisible. I spent two to three days a week in the communications lab practicing my presentations trying my best to sound how what I thought was credible, which was basically not black. Two to three times in the writing lab, trying to, as my professor had stated, not write how I spoke. So I got to the end of the semester and I'm sitting in the science student lab and there's these huge glass doors that go from the floor up to the ceiling. And the professor's walking by and he sees me and he proceeds to come in, and for a moment, my heart stops. And he opens the door and he says to me, Cynthia, I wanna tell you that you're the most improved student of the semester, that after that first paper, you really turned it around, and maybe you're gonna make an awesome scientist after all. In that next moment, all I felt was triumphed, because yes, I had won, and I had shown him that I could be a scientist, that I could be a credible witness, and that I, in fact, belonged in science. But that triumph lasted only a moment, and I can recall my entire body going hot and deep sadness coming over me. And in that next moment, I sat with a feeling of self-betrayal, 
And I question, had I given too up too much of me, of how I spoke, of how I carried myself, abandoned all of my purple color for stale black suits? Sure, there was this person who now thought I was going to be a great scientist, but at what cost? And then I asked myself, is science always going to ask this of me? Ask me to melt and mold into something that I am not? Brene Brown says that belonging does not ask you to fit in. That fitting in is when you scan a room and adapt the ideas, the posture, the behavior and language of others until you render yourself invisible. That semester, I had decided to fit in because my difference, my identity, the things that had made me me were called out so loudly and so negatively. I've had the opportunity to present at global innovation conferences with scientists from Germany and Italy and other places in the world. I started those presentations letting the audience know that my favorite color is purple, <laughs> that I love chocolate, and that my first language is African-American vernacular English, i.e. Ebonics. <laughs> the presentations went off without a hitch. Because I assure you, in global rooms, perfect English is not the standard. Mm -hmm. I have stood on manufacturing engineering floors with my steel toe shoes and my butt caps. And I have made sure that my lip gloss was always popping. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing my whole self. Today, there is no self-betrayal. I have products that you can walk into the store and buy off the shelf. Products that you use in your devices, the things you use every day in your cars and in your homes that I made. I am sure that I am science because every day I get up and I walk out and I observe and I question and I have the courage and the curiosity to see what does not yet exist. And that's something deep inside me. And as much as I am sure I am science, I was then, I am now, and I will forever be, as Michelle, as Barack Obama so affectionately refers to Michelle LaVon Robinson, a girl from the South Side. <laughs> That was Cynthia. If you'd like to learn more about her and her work, visit our website, storycollider.org. Our website is just one way to connect with Story Collider, but there are so many other ways, and we hope you'll use all of them. You can always follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Head to storycollider.org to become a financial supporter. Also, next Tuesday is our ultimate Story Slam showdown. Join us for an unforgettable night of storytelling and suspense. Our fantastic storytellers will take the virtual stage to share their incredible tales, but there's a twist. You decide who emerges as the Story Slam winner. This night is all about supporting great storytelling and the power of personal narratives. Donate to cast your vote for your favorite storyteller or storytellers throughout the night and watch as they battle it out for the ultimate title. And the best part? All proceeds from this electrifying evening go to support the Story Clatter's incredible programs. 
ensuring we continue to celebrate the art of storytelling. Hosted by our very own senior producer, Paula Croxon, this is a showdown you won't want to miss. Register for free and get ready to be swept away by the magic of storytelling. And if you can't make it on December 12th, or you're having trouble choosing your favorite storyteller, we've got you covered. Make a donation to the Story Clutter to support our impactful work in 2024. Visit storyclutter.org for all the details. For more details about this show and all our other shows are on our website. The Story Clutter is very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Misha Gajewski, along with Nikisha Roberts-Washington, Jen Chen, and Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Clutter. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Bart Thompson, Katie Wu, Sam Lyons, and Gabe Montesanti. Special thanks goes out to The Story Clutter's board and staff, including Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Leslie Burnson, and Lindsay Cooper. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week, I'll be back with stories about DIY science. It's such a fun episode, and I can't wait for y'all to hear it. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.